Good evening. The trial of Derek Chauvin enters its seventh day, pleading the fifth and a dog in the fight. Yemen hunger strike is nine days old and the future of Penn Station. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. President Joe Biden announced today he's bumping up his deadline by two weeks for states to make all adults in the United States eligible for coronavirus vaccines. But even as he expressed optimism about the pace of vaccinations, he warned Americans that the nation is not yet out of the woods when it comes to the pandemic. We have too many people who seen the end in sight think we're at the finish line already. But let me be deadly earnest with you. We aren't at the finish line. We still have a lot of work to do. We're still in a life and death race against this virus. Biden expressed hope. Biden made the announcement after visiting a COVID-19 vaccination site at Emanuel Chapel at the Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria. And Major League Baseball announced this week it'll move the All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver. In response to a raft of laws passed by the Georgia legislature that are meant to make it harder to vote for most Georgians. Colorado, the home of Denver, has some of the most expansive laws for allowing absentee balloting. The vast majority of state voters never see a polling place. They just vote for home from home by mail. But that didn't stop a questioner today who asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki if the change was much ado about nothing. Colorado allows you to register on Election Day. Colorado has voting by mail where they send to 100 percent of people in the state who are eligible applications to vote by mail. Ninety four percent of people in Colorado voted by mail in the 2020 election. They also allow for a range of materials to provide, even if they vote on Election Day, for the limited number of people who who vote on Election Day. The Georgia legislation is built on a lie. There was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. What there was, however, was record-setting turnout, especially by voters of color. What we're seeing here is for politicians who didn't like the outcome, they're not changing their policies to win more votes. They're changing the rules to exclude more voters. Meanwhile, in more news from the southern border, two Yemeni men on a terror watch list were picked up trying to enter the United States in separate incidents. There has been a surge of migrants at the border, and that's prompted that prompted a question about whether the Biden administration was losing control. Saki responded. Encounters of known and suspected terrorists are very uncommon. They do underscore the importance of the critical work that is done on a daily basis to vet those at the border. DHS works um, not just at the border, uh, as you know, but also with international partners to share intelligence and other information, including to prevent individuals on certain watch lists from entering the United States. So while this is rare, this is a reflection of them doing their jobs. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., a hunger strike by two Yemeni American activists enters its ninth day. Iman Saleh and Monica Isaac met with Somali-American Congressperson Ilan Omar, who offered support this week for the two hunger strikers who say that a Saudi-led blockade is starving the people of Yemen. We hear now from Hassan El-Tayab of the Friends Committee on National Legislation and hunger striker Iman Saleh. I am standing in solidarity with some amazing hunger strikers from Michigan. They're part of an organization called the Yemeni Liberation Movement, and they've been hunger striking for nine days right now. 
calling on Biden to press Saudi Arabia to end the blockade on Yemen. And that's just such an urgent concern right now with 400,000 children at risk of dying this year as a result of severe acute malnutrition. So it's really urgent. Saudi Arabia has blocked fuel ships from entering Hodeida port. And as a result, hospitals can't function, food trucks can't get to where they need to go, and it's exacerbating the world's worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. The Biden administration is presenting itself as a new approach. This blockade continues. The Biden administration has indeed taken some positive steps on Yemen. They appointed an envoy to Yemen to help with the peace process. They put an end to U.S. support for offensive operations. They paused weapons sales. They lifted the FTO designation. But the Saudi blockade on Yemen is the most insidious piece of this puzzle. And that's what's really driving the humanitarian crisis by cutting off the flow of food, fuel and medicine. Saudi Arabia is probably pushing back really hard and not wanting to give up that leverage. And they like using starvation as leverage over the Houthis in in their political negotiations. But what we're saying is that's unacceptable and the blockade needs to be lifted unconditionally and immediately. Hello. Hi, this is Paul. Who is it? Oh, Ilan, hi. How are you? you? It's a few days later and uh, nine days without eating. What's that like for you? depressing i feel like my feel like my body is going on a really slow decline i think when people think of starvation they don't realize the mental health effects that it has on you and the exhaustion and it's definitely feeling it definitely feeling the the slow mental decline are you connecting at all with the people that you're trying to influence are they noticed that you're having this hunger strike yeah so we just uh, actually just finished talking with uh, congresswoman uh Ilhan omar she came and sat with us and demonstrated with us uh, during our hunger strike. As we put more information out, as we release videos and graphics and our daily reflections of what it's like going through a hunger strike, we're picking up more and more attention. What is the message you'd like to give to the president of the United States right now? Lift the blockade. If this is an emergency. I mean, any every single day over a thousand children die. So how many more days do you need to do you need to? And how many more days? How many more children need to die before you realize that there's blood on your hands? How long are you going to go? I want to throw that question right back at the president. How long is he going to keep? How long is he going to keep this blockade going for? Why is why is my life worth more than uh, than the people in Yemen? So I want to put that pressure back on him. Right. You're consulting with professionals, and you know, are being watched. It's been exhausting, but we we have a great support team right. here and we, we have medical professionals who've been checking on us good good i'm glad to hear that Iman Sela, she's on a hunger strike for nine days now, calling for an end to the blockade that she says is starving the children of Yemen. She was joined by Hassan Al-Tab of the Friends Committee on National Legislation. And the trial of Derek Chauvin enters its seventh day with police officers' testimony on procedures for putting people in custody, how to do chokeholds, how to do what they even called multiple fighting, MMM fighting styles of uh, jujitsu and other ways that the uh, police are uh, trained to take down people who don't want to go with the police, a, a commonplace occurrence, according to the testimony heard today. Minneapolis police officer Nicole McKenzie works as medical support coordinator for the Minnesota Police Department. She says a person could become emotionally disturbed for many reasons and that police are required to treat them no matter 
how they came to be injured or in distress. Can the activities, though, of a, of a crowd, the activities of a, of a uh, group of onlookers excuse a police officer from the duty to render emergency medical aid to a subject who needs it? Only if they were physically getting themselves involved, I'd say. If they were physically prevented, if the officer was physically prevented from doing it. Yes, if the officer was being physically assaulted. Um, that is Nicole McKenzie, a police officer. The person in the car with George Floyd, if you look at the videos, you'll see that uh, there was a passenger in the automobile when Floyd was confronted by Chauvin. That person's name is Maurice Hall, a friend of Floyd, who's been blamed by defense lawyers for supplying illegal drugs to Floyd. Part of their argument is that Floyd didn't die from the interaction with the police officer who held him under uh, his neck, under his knee for nine and a half minutes, but because of uh, aggravated underlying conditions brought about by alleged drug use. Hall, through his lawyer, said today her client is pleading the Fifth Amendment. That's the protection against self-incrimination. She argued her point with defense lawyers and Judge Cahill. There's an allegation here that Mr. Floyd ingested a controlled substance as police were removing him from the car. A car, by the way, that has been searched twice, and to my understanding, drugs have been found in that car twice. This leaves Mr. Hall potentially incriminating himself into a future prosecution for third-degree murder liability for someone who is involved in drug activity that eventually leads in an overdose. And that statute is broad, Judge. Uh, it does not just include the situation where A sells drugs to B, B then succumbs to an overdose. Right. I think what I'm going to do is ask Mr. Nelson to list for the court the topics and areas and whether there's something outside of what you just outlined. Certainly, uh, any events leading up to their Mr. Hall and Mr. Floyd's arrival at Cup Foods earlier in the day where they were, what they were doing. Mr. Hall is seen on a security camera uh, taking something out of his backpack and throwing it. Um, I would ask him about those and what it was that he threw. And I would also ask Mr. Hall about um, his decision to leave Minnesota immediately after this incident and his sub subsequent apprehension by the Texas Rangers. It appears that this would be a proper invocation of his Fifth Amendment rights for just about everything Mr. Nelson was talking about. The one exception appears to be his observations sitting in the passenger seat of the car as how Mr. Floyd appeared, that he was falling asleep and that it happened suddenly. Would you agree that that's not incriminating if we keep all the mention of drugs or why or anything like that? No, Your Honor, I do not agree. That how that would that, when it did not incriminate the clerk who said he thought he was high, how would it be that Mr. Hall saying that would incriminate him? The whole point here is to prevent Mr. Hall from incriminating himself. And him even answering that question that he was in the car puts him in very close proximity with Mr. Floyd and very close in time before he's alleged to have ingested drugs. And again, it exposes him on that third-degree murder charge. And that's Adrian Cousins. She's the public defender for Maurice Hall, who was the passenger in the car with George Floyd. The fight is whether the jury will be subjected to hearing Hall individually claim his right to not incriminate himself to each question or in a blanket way over his entire testimony. The judge and the lawyers discuss the alternatives.
I don't think you have a dog in the fight at this point. Our dog in the fight is a fair trial for Mr. Chauvin. Of course. The invocation of the Fifth Amendment right is on a question-by-question -question basis, and the legitimacy of that invocation is to de be determined by the court, which makes sense. Otherwise, somebody who just didn't want to testify could say, oh, I'm asserting my Fifth Amendment rights. I, I agree with that concept, Your Honor. They might just be invoking because they don't want to testify. And I don't know how we put on Mr. Hall to testify and ask him one question and then and then let him leave without having the ability to pursue, um, as we normally would in a trial, the credibility and the foundation for that testimony um, in light of all we know. Let's say what are the questions we're going to ask him. Let's walk through outside the hearing of the jury whether or not I would allow it and find that it's not incriminating. And then based on that... Uh, Mr. Hall can meet with his lawyers, so I'm talking by Thursday. I'd like that list. So with that, uh, everybody's got their homework assignments. And the trial continues tomorrow. It's expected to go for a couple of weeks. It could even go longer than that. And in interesting national news having to do with toxic chemicals, the United States military, is it poisoning people and the environment in this country and worldwide through its careless use of firefighting foam called PFAS? It has a lot of military applications, but it's also found in airports and other places where people have to fight very intense fires. Recent events in Vermont where the cancer-causing chemicals called PFAS leached from a landfill – into the state's water supply have raised alarms. Pat Elder is a writer and activist who's been following the issue. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. PFAS is a broad name for more than 8,000 varieties. It actually stands for per and polyfluoralkyl substances. And the two most notorious and certainly the most studied are PFOS and PFOA, which have been used in firefighting foams by the military since 1968. And in New York, as well as across the country, but especially in places like Niagara Falls and Plattsburgh, they dug 200-foot diameter craters, usually two or three feet deep, and they filled them with jet fuel. And then they would position firefighters around the crater light the thing on fire, and some of these firefighters have referred to them as little little nuclear bombs. I mean, you know, um, and then they would extinguish them using the um, AFFF, or aqueous film-forming foam, which uh, contains this PFAS ingredients. Um, and uh, they'd snuff out those fires in no time, and it was part of their their training and uh, the problem of course is it all sinks into the groundwater and so even today um plattsburgh heck it closed uh many years ago um and uh um the uh, groundwater is still seeping out and surface water is still leaching with contaminants and probably will for many many generations to come these are forever chemicals they don't they don't break down, and um, they bioaccumulate in fish. So it only takes a couple parts per trillion in the water to create fish that are poisonous. And what is the effect of the poison? PFAS has been linked to liver cancer, kidney cancer, breast cancer, testicular cancer, low sperm count. But 
even more frightening is that it moves from the mother's umbilical cord of the placenta, and so it adversely affects the development of the fetus. And so we see a wider range of children's diseases from asthma to ADHD. It's now being thought of as a leading cause of these childhood diseases. The irony is the state of New York limits PFOS and PFOA in drinking water to 10 parts per trillion. These are tiny, tiny parts. But in the meantime, you're free to go catch a fish with hundreds of thousands of parts per trillion. It's the same stuff. And so that's my charge right now to try to alert the public to the fact that eating fish can be extremely hazardous to your health. What can be done? We need to monitor what we throw away. We need to have several track landfill system, first of all, so that we're no longer burying materials that we know doggone well are going to poison us. But even more importantly, we need to designate all PFAS chemicals as hazardous substances. In doing so, we subject them to CERCLA or the Superfund law. And once that happens, then the polluter is liable for the cleanup uh, and the protection of public health. That would cost the United States military tens of billions of dollars and perhaps even more. And the military would find tremendous liability, not just in the United States, but around the world. So we need to designate this stuff as hazardous chemicals, which has not been happening. Uh, and the Obama administration just kicked it down the road. Are there alternatives? There are plenty of alternatives. Most of the Europeans have switched over. They got the memo six or eight years ago. So they're called Triple uh, F fluorine-free foams, which are just as capable. Why aren't the United States companies switching to this? The military is driving that ship. The firefighting phones in use by the military must contain the ingredients. Civilian airports uh, typically follow the Pentagon's lead in this regard. The Pentagon claims that the firefighting foams containing the carcinogens actually snuff out fires a little bit quicker. The Europeans claim that that's really not the case. The chemical industry itself is profiting on the sale to both the military and private users of the foams. Writer Pat Elder is founder of MilitaryPoisons.org. Last year, Elder tested seawater, rockfish, crabs, and oysters at his home in southern Maryland near the Chesapeake Bay and found the levels to be a threat to human health. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, three women and a suspected gunman are dead in what police believe was a murder-suicide Monday night in Brooklyn. It happened about 11.30 p.m. inside an apartment at the Van Dyke Houses located at 362 Sutter Avenue in Brownsville. Police Commissioner Dermot Shea said officers found the body of the primary suspect nearby on Mother Gaston Boulevard. He'd shot himself in the head. The incident led to a question to Mayor de Blasio at today's news conference asking, is the city responding to the rise in domestic violence during the pandemic? Tried to do is combine uh, a lot of the outreach work that um, extraordinary community organizations do supporting survivors of domestic violence and working to prevent it. We've tried to double down on those efforts, support those efforts. And obviously the work the NYPD does um, to try in many ways to avert domestic violence, to keep a close eye on any situation where there's been domestic violence, to make sure that uh, the perpetrators know that there is constant follow-up and constant vigilance and to support the survivors. And that was the 
mayor talking about the tragedy that occurred in Brooklyn on Monday night. In more local news, New York news, a former HUD official is now barred from future government employment for four years. Lynn Patton, who is the Housing and Urban Development Regional Administrator for New York and New Jersey, was found guilty of violating the Hatch Act. It's a law prohibiting executive branch employees from engaging in political activities while on duty. Authorities say Patton admitted she abused her authority in a publicity stunt that tricked New York City public housing residents into sounding supportive of former President Donald Trump. And you might remember in that story and and related stories, the president had argued that violating the Hatch Act was a so minor of a crime as to be uh, unenforceable. That turns out not to have been the truth for Ms. Lynn Patton. New Yorkers over 16 years old can sign up to receive the COVID-19 vaccine starting today. That's a dramatic expansion of eligibility as the state seeks to immunize as many people as possible. Governor Andrew Cuomo says with the new variants, we are vaccinating as many people as possible and doing it equitably, which will go a long way towards keeping New Yorkers safe. In related news, the State University of New York announced plans to offer vaccines to tens of thousands of college students before they head home for the summer. Meanwhile, it says it'll offer one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccines to residential students before the semester's end. And two New York City apartment building workers have been fired for failing to help an Asian-American woman as she was being violently attacked on the sidewalk outside. The building's management company says a doorman failed to follow required emergency and safety protocols during the March 29th attack near Times Square. The Dormans Union, SEIU 32BJ, previously said they waited until the attacker walked away to flag down a nearby patrol car because they thought he had a knife. And in other health news, doctors say a woman is breathing freely again after undergoing a windpipe transplant from a donor. The 56-year-old social worker so far hasn't had any complications or signs of organ rejection. The windpipe transplant is the first of its kind in the United States. Doctors say this drastic operation could potentially help other people, including COVID-19 patients left with serious windpipe damage from breathing machines. And finally, a new coalition of transit Advocates, civic groups, and Manhattan residents are demanding a more thoughtful transit-centered plan that preserves neighborhoods. They'll hold a rally to protest Governor Cuomo's Empire Station complex. They say his plan fails to address the core issues of Penn Station, including below-ground mass transit. They add the governor is threatening to use safe power to raise several adjacent historic blocks without meaningful city or community input while paving the way for Vornado Realty Trust to build 10 new skyscrapers. Mayor de Blasio addressed the issue earlier today. What the governor proposed is a mistake. Uh, uh, It's not that Penn Station isn't an important area for the city. It is. And I certainly believe we need more development as part of how we come out of this pandemic. But it has to be the right kind of development. It has to be with communities, not against communities. It has to include the voices of communities, it has to respect um, what people need in a community and achieve something for that community and not just be a giveaway to big developers. So uh, the governor's plan was very developer friendly, not community friendly. Uh, last I heard, the legislature was taking measures and steps to create balance. Uh, and I want to get the latest on that. We absolutely need that kind of balance when it comes to Penn Station. And you can join the rally that's uh, against this project. Uh, it's happening on Wednesday, April 7th. That's tomorrow 
at noon at 401 7th Avenue in front of the Hotel Pennsylvania, right across from Penn Station. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, April 6, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.